So my thought for this afternoon was kind of twofold. Number one, just to kind of open it up to you all to, to ask all the questions that you have particularly that we haven't been able to get to. And then to kind of close, and unfortunately we don't have others here to, to tell them this, but I'd like the panel, however many of us there are, to just give a five minute or less synopsis of what you think is most important for somebody who's getting in this to to know or to think about, and that's a tall order, but um, welcome, Brad. Yes, did you hear that? Okay, so we're going to end this session by you sharing wisdom from your experience for somebody who's just starting out. What advice would you give to somebody just getting into this? And obviously, you're going to have to just really pick and choose, but what do you think are some of the most important things to, to consider if you're wanting to, to farm for a living? So that will be where we end, but let's start by some questions from the, the audience here. And, and again, if you can come up so that the questions can be recorded for Audioverse. Um, my question is, well, this past summer I started a large garden, like 5,000 square feet that I did myself. And it was really incredibly busy <laughs> trying to take care of it all myself. And I did it because I wanted to market, but um, I couldn't figure out, not having done it, when do you pick your produce, if you're taking it in the morning or in the afternoon, how do you prepare your produce ahead of time to take to market? Good question. We haven't talked about that at all. Just give one little tip, and that is most things, especially leafy greens, you want to pick in the cool of the day. Uh, you don't want to be out there when it's hot, ideally. Um, one of the, the things that really endeared me to the other uh, vendors at our farmer's market, now bear in mind, we're a small farmer's market, so my, my fellow vendors are not competitors, they're family. And we have a, a, a perspective at our farmer's market that we really look out for the benefit of the market. There's not any sense of competition. Uh, we, we really work together, and that's part of why I think we're, we're as successful as we are. But one of the things that really endeared me to them when I first arrived was I saw the lettuce that they were selling, and one of the, the vendors who's come to be uh, my best friend in the area, uh, you know, his lettuce looked pretty shabby, and he was really uh, frustrated, and he was whining a little bit that first day because he had just gone out at 5 o'clock that morning and cut that lettuce, and, and here it was about... 10 or 11 a.m. that morning, and it wasn't looking like it was fit for sale. And I said, well, did you condition it? And he said, condition it? What do you mean by that? And I said, well, you can do it a couple of ways. I have a, a large commercial cooler, but I cut my lettuce the day before and let it refrigerate for at least 20, uh, uh, 12 to 24 hours before I bring it to the market. And if you don't have refrigeration to do that, you can do it with ice water, too. But it's important to condition your greens before they go to market, what that does is it, it, it sets them into a, a, a false sense of dormancy. You bring the temperature in the tissue itself down below 42 degrees, and basically the physiological processes slow down or stop, and the wilting is prevented that way. And you can then take it out of that conditioned environment, uh, the cooler or the ice water, and uh, the product will hold up much, much longer, even in the hot temperatures of, of late afternoon and in midsummer. Uh, so conditioning greens is, is, is an important facet of, of how, to, how to protect it and provide for it too. 
Uh, we, we usually harvest the day before market. Now, our market starts at 9 in the morning, so uh, we, we harvest the day before, condition what needs to be conditioned, and get everything organized, and then load and go to market with, with the, the other items that we have. Uh, you can leave them in the ice water overnight, if, if, if depending on your quantity. But the, the concept here is to get the field heat out of the produce, to chill the plant tissue below 42 degrees, and then to keep it in an environment where it's not going to dehydrate. You know, commercially, when they grow lettuce, they, they, lettuce is treated with 7 to 10 chemicals even after it's harvested. And some of that is uh, to help prevent uh, transpiration. There are, uh, if, if, you're, har if you, you're, you're harvesting romaine lettuce in the fields of Sal the Salinas Valley, for example, as soon as that lettuce is cut, they spray a, a, an anti-transparent agent on the, on the stem of the lettuce tissue. And then as it goes on through cold storage and f further in processing, there are other anti-transparent agents in there too, some citric acid compounds to help keep it hydrated. And even the misters that you see at the grocery store, that little water mist, that, that's not just water. Uh, there are agents in there too to help keep the, the tissue hydrated. And if you want to be competitive, it's important that you, you, you present your, your, your produce uh, the way the customers are accustomed to seeing it. Do you, do you uh, harvest your lettuce early in the morning? And the, another question that I have is uh, um, what about um, how, do you, how do you handle the uh, safety issue when it comes to having dogs or other animals around your farm? We have a couple dogs for keeping the deer and coons away. Um, you know, when it comes to um, sanitation, that's uh... I'll, I'll take a quick shot at that and then I'll pass the microphone down. We harvest our lettuce uh, usually uh, in the morning or in the evening, not during the heat of the day. Uh, our, our typical uh, farmer's market is, is not that large, so we're only harvesting maybe three or four dozen heads of lettuce for our market. And we'll typically do that the evening before uh, bearing in mind that from the time I cut the lettuce to the time it gets into the cooler, it's only 15 or 20 minutes. Uh, and and if, uh, you know, if you have that capacity, uh, that, that works well for us. Uh, I'm glad you brought up food safety. Uh, food safety is an issue that is upon us, whether we want it or not. And I don't want to, uh, to discourage any of you uh, about food safety issues, but it is important that you're aware of them. And one of the things that will really raise red flags is if you have animals in your garden. Um, <clears throat> uh, this is where gap training, again, can be helpful. I mentioned that in one of the earlier sessions. Uh, the same fence that we use to keep wildlife out of our garden areas, we use to keep our own pets out of the garden areas, too. And my daughter loves birds. She has guineas and ducks and geese that are just pets. And uh, we have to keep them out of the garden area, too. So it is, it is uh, very, uh, you know, very important, especially if you're, 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 you're selling into institutional markets or to the farm-to-school program to have uh, produce that you know is, is, is good, clean produce. Uh, we harvest our lettuce. We rinse it. Uh, we try, lettuce is one of those things that uh, uh, does take a little skill in growing. We grow some of it in our high tunnels. Uh, where we live, we have... Uh, the potential for heavy thunderstorms that can splash a lot of soil up into the lettuce and, and that takes a lot of time to wash out. Uh, so we use uh, paper mulches, we use hay mulches on our lettuce beds that are outdoors to, to keep it fairly clean, but generally we just cut it, rinse it, and then it goes into, into the cooler. The other thing I want to mention real quickly along those lines, because the question may not come up, is that when you're, when you're packaging your produce, we use food-grade plastic bags. Uh, a lot of folks show up at the farmer's market and throw their stuff in trash bags. Um, that is, is, is not a good practice because there's a lot of off-gassing from some of those plastics. And, um, you know, customers, some of your customers may be aware of that too. And if they see you bringing produce in a, in, you know, in a 30-gallon trash bag, uh, that may turn them off. But there are lots of sources uh, for food-grade plastic bags, and that's what we use to, to haul our product. 
um, I'm not sure if I fit the mold for what you're doing, but as far as marketing, I can just explain what we do and what we've arrived at. It's something similar, uh, depending on the size of what we're doing. Uh, but, you know, if we're harvesting in the heat, of the day, no matter what we're doing, and we harvest in the heat of the day, because sometimes we're picking, it's 100, 110 in the afternoon sometimes. We've built shelters over our picking wagons. We have our workers with umbrellas that are on the, on the um, conveyor line that actually helps shade the conveyor belts and everything as well. We get everything in to the field, do something similar. We try to chill everything down overnight before we pack it. So we, it goes into the cooler. We don't have a sophisticated cooling system, um, but we chill it down and then we bring it back and we pack it. So we'll pack our, so we go into the, because when you go into the box, if it goes in hot and you then pack it in a brick, that heat stays in there. And then, of course, you know, traveling to the market is going to be in, the heat's going to stay retained in that, in that box and in the fruit. So that's the, that's the best way that we've found to do it. And, and when we, say like our zucchini, we'll pack our zucchini, and when it comes in, if it's from the field, we will, we use a paper sheet on the bottom, we'll spray it down with water, we'll put a paper sheet on the top, and that kind of adds a little humidity, keeps it from dehydrating, and then we'll chill it down, and then we'll ship it the next day after it's chilled. If we're on a larger scale, what we've done is that we have a, a neighbor that has a hydrocooler, and that's a fantastic machine. It, it'll, you can put all your bins, you know, big field bins in the hydrocooler. It washes all the heat out of the, out of the fruit, and then you stick it in the cooler and draw it down to the temperature you want after that. We found various things in our system. We have to have different coolers at different temperatures because we have tomatoes that like say a 55 or 60. We've got squash that might, or cucumbers that might take a, say a, a more like a 45. And then we've got melons that want to be in the 30 range. And we can't put melons with our other things because of the ethylene that gives off. It'll ripen our tomatoes. And, and so we have to keep separate coolers for different types of products and, and kind of monitor that. Because one time we had a, a worker shove a pallet of melons into our watermelon room and all our watermelon went soft. You know, the skin, the real thin skin, that just softens them. And then, you know, so d details like that, you sometimes, well, how would how, how, how you, you know, it takes sometimes in, in, in our, in my education, I didn't go to, to all the schools that teach everything either, you know, so I've kind of learned the hard way a lot of ways you know, about some of this stuff, you know, so as it comes to things like this, you'll maybe learn a little more too, but I don't know everything. But that's just some of my methods. I mean, there's a myriad of things we do over time that we've learned. I would just take the opportunity to, if you're talking about coolers, um, that can be quite pricey. We, we, we handmade, we, we, we made ours out of all salvaged, yeah, and I was just going to mention this CoolBot yeah, is yeah. what I was going to do. If you guys have never heard of a CoolBot, you should go online and look up CoolBot, and you can build your own coolers for relatively inexpensive comparatively to, to purchasing. C-O-O-L. Cool. Isn't it store it cool or store it cold? Store it cool. If you just Google CoolBot. B-O-T. Okay. But um, it's a, basically it overrides... It's got an algorithm that you take the sensor for a, a air conditioner and you attach that sensor to the cool bot and then it, you stick its sensor in to the fins and it does an algorithm to trick the machine into lowering the temperature to what you could get down to 32. And so, um, you know, different size, they have a range of air conditioners that you can purchase based on size of room. And so it's something that if, if you're, you know, just getting into it and you don't want to spend the money on a, you know, a, what could be a quite expensive um, purchase, it's a good option to look into. Yeah, we, we, we found an old um, freezer, freezer car of a train, mm -hmm. and we just put an air conditioner in there. Mm -hmm. and, and that's got insulated walls, and it's, you know, it's, it works pretty good for just, a, you know, whether it was a little window air conditioners. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, and what I do for as far as bringing things out of field temperature is we use tanks of water. Everything gets harvested and put right into a tank of water. Then it comes out of the water packaged and goes into the refrigeration unit, similar 
process. The term is hydrocooling. You know, you're you're using water to cool your produce, <clears throat> and I think everybody's in agreement that the the key to fresh produce is taking off that field heat as quickly as possible. Okay, let's let's take another question. We want to get. Can you come up? We have a spot for a greenhouse, and um, there was a lot of oil spilt from an old bulldozer that was taken to pieces there. And um, we're wondering how to make the soil so it can be usable again. I don't want to tackle that. <laughs> there, there's, there's not a lot you can do, quite honestly. There, there, you know, I don't know. Bob may be able to tell me I'm crazy, <laughs> but I've heard there's a gentleman in the Northwest who uses biologicals to degrade it. I don't know the science behind it, but I know that when, when the, the co-founder of Microsoft had an issue with the guy pouring a bunch of diesel on the back side of his property, um, this is what I just got heard this just at this, um, at this meeting here. Yeah. But what it what they did to remedy the sliding when they did that all of the they started slide the mud started to slide, and uh, he they hired this guy to come in and he um, created a biological compound that literally stopped the sliding in 24 hours, based on just not my opinion biology um, little little critters in the soil. Um, I don't, you know, whether I'd plant into that afterwards is still a major question. Uh, whether it, it works or not, I don't know that I'd want to plant into to that necessarily. There's a guy here at the conference that you might want to get in touch with. Is he here? Anyways, we were talking the other day, and he uses um, charcoal to actually extract um, toxins out of the soil in a farming, and it binds them in a form that... It just pulls them out and binds them. I've also heard about charcoal. I've been doing some research on um, biochar, if, no one else has, if anyone else has heard about that. But um, they're using uh, things like this, charcoal, biochar. They actually use it in the oil industry when there's an oil spill out in the sea. They'll pour charcoal and bring it in, and it'll actually absorb that. And then they'll burn that charcoal off and change the format of those chemicals so it's no longer harmful. So something that you might want to research as far as applying charcoal, especially if it's a small area, that could be an easy way to take care of it. Yeah, not knowing how big your area is, you might be able to, if it's, it hasn't soaked in that much, you might be able to replace some of that. You know, if it's just, I'm not, I'm just thinking it drip out of the oil pan of this rig, or, or was it just? Yeah, so you know, you may be able to remedy it some way that way, and I think the biochar idea is probably an excellent one, and then you, you might plant some things, see how it grows, see if it does okay. Okay, I, I think we're going to move on because we just want to cover as many questions as possible. Does do we have another question out there? Yes, can you come forward, please? In fact, if there are others, if you can just come forward and sit, it'll save a little bit of time. I was just wondering how to anchor a greenhouse that tends to like to go parachuting in the wind. I'll just speak to that. We have a number of movable greenhouses, and that's always a fear with a movable greenhouse is that it's going to move when you don't want it to. But we've actually, and of course, depending on where you are in the country, if you're in Oklahoma, you're going to have to work a little harder to anchor it down. But we have found, and we learned this from Elliot Coleman, um, just pounding in tea stakes um, by our bows. So we've got 30 by 48 foot movable houses and we'll put like three on each end and attach them to the bows and three on the sides and I've been in them in some pretty strong winds and I have not felt like they're gonna go anywhere so you know that has worked well for us um, if you live in a really windy place but but Elliot Coleman told me he's had 70 mile an hour winds and he only stakes his on the four corners. And, 
you know, and, and I talked to another greenhouse manufacturer. He said the big thing is not to let the wind get in underneath, and then it'll lift it. So if you close it up as much as you can when it's going to be windy, that will help. Um, I, you know, the tea stake idea is a really good idea. We're actually using that currently. We stake ours down with around 14 to 16 tea stakes. And this is a 24 by 36 foot house. So it's a pretty small house, but we've had some 70 mile an hour winds. So they haven't blown away. Uh, some, yeah, sometimes the, the sides get a little loose on it. But as far as the house blowing away, we haven't, the house hasn't blown away or shaken at all. But I will point out that you might want something, especially if you're living in Oklahoma, a little bit sturdier than Elliot Coleman's design because we were just up there and he had a house blow away on him during this last storm. So, but. It would, I think he said that there was some, some part of the anchoring system that was compromised. But here's the idea. If one's compromised, put a few more in just to make sure that something doesn't happen. But, uh, yeah, it, it moved his house a good 20, 30 feet, just lifted it up and plopped it over. So, One other thing I'd just say to this issue. You know, most, um, most hoop houses, at least commercial style, the, the metal hoop houses, they the instructions will just tell you to pound the post into the ground. To me, and, and I've seen and heard stories of, you know, when, when you get a drought or something and the ground shrinks up, those can just pull right out of the ground. So we always do some of our T-posts, I mean, yeah, our ground posts in cement. Put a, a bolt or something through it to, to grab and you, you put those in cement. We don't do them all that way, but we'd rather be safe than sorry. It's no fun taking a hoop house out of the trees. What advice can the panel give to parents with younger kids, six, 10 or so, and the kids give resistance to wanting to go out and help mom and dad in their, you know, to make it an industry? I know there's a lot of factors there that you don't know about, you know, if they, uh, you know, when they're young, you can um, just kind of say, this is what we do, this is what needs to be done, and, and pray that they're going to learn to like it. And as I was sharing with some others, you know, if you can give them that sense of ownership, that is so critical. If they can own it, if it's theirs, then they take it much more seriously. So, you know, let them grow one of the crops or whatever, but the, the younger you start, the better, I believe. You know, once they get to their teen years, you're fighting, and, and you can't force them, otherwise it, it backfires. So you look like, you know, make it enjoyable for them. Um, at least what I'm trying to say is show them that you're enjoying it, lead by example, and um, try to, to get them into ownership. And I briefly shared with others, in today's society is tough, you know, when they have friends, even at church, that uh, they're enticed with the iPods, the, or if, what other things that uh, kind of you know, pull their attention away. So it's, it's, a, it's a tough struggle. Just to... Just a question, just from my own mind. Are, are these individuals, are they homeschooled or are they going to a homeschooled? Okay. Were they always homeschooled? Okay. My daughter's been helping me since she was three. And uh, when I say helping, I don't mean just in a casual way. Uh, she uh, spends at least half a day with me every day uh, working on the farm. And after her schoolwork is done, she just knows that that's what she's going to do. But the key, uh, and, and there will be those days when, you know, she's not quite kicking and screaming but would like to. Um, there, are, uh, there are some keys, and, and one of them is, is, is what Brother Dysinger mentioned, and that is giving them a sense of ownership. And working with them, you know, we, we, it, it, it's... it's somewhat of a struggle for those of us that have been doing this for a long time to to take the time and to be patient enough to to coach them as they work and to work alongside of them 
But those moments for the kids are the ones that really keep them at it. And I'm not saying I do this all the time uh, with Jordan, but it, it, I find that when I do work with her, then she understands her role within the family better. She recognizes that what we're doing does have a value. We discuss that. We make it obvious to her. We try to use the, the garden as an educational environment as much as possible. Frankly, when she was about five years old, I was, I was still at Heartland at the time, uh, she knew more about what was going on on the farm than, than our college-age students did and knew, knows plant ID better than, than most of the folks that have been doing it for a long time. Uh, but it's because she recognizes that that's just what we do. And, uh, and collocating that is, is, is a bit of a challenge, but the earlier, uh, uh, the, the, earlier the better. Okay, we have time for a few more questions. My question would be, it says if you're going to grow something for the farmer's market, obviously you want to grow what people will buy, but do you have a certain price per square foot type cutoff thing that you don't grow? Obviously you're not going to compete with a soy farmer or, or uh, you know, like growing corn and so forth, the things that are more large scale farm. You know, I've heard from a number of people, and it seems to, to fit well for us, that um, you need to be making at least 20,000 an acre um, in the kind of farming we do. And so obviously you're not growing an acre of things, but if you figure, you know, I'm, I'm growing this many square feet and calculate what you would make per acre, you need to make at least 20,000 in order to make it worthwhile. Net. Net or gross? That is gross. Yeah, that's gross. And obviously, that, I mean, that's the minimum. You want to go up from there, but I think that's a rule of thumb. And a second rule that I thought was very good was when it comes to harvesting, if you're not making at least $30 an hour in your harvesting, then don't grow it so you know and that's easy to figure out i can pick this many pints of cherry tomatoes in an hour what am i going to make so that's a good rule for deciding what you're going to grow i just want to point out in saying that that doesn't mean you're earning thirty dollars an hour that that's thirty dollars worth of product and that's to help cover the costs of, of producing the product too uh, to, we break that down. Essentially, my numbers are pretty much the same as what you just heard. We do it on a square foot basis, and my uh, priority for a crop is a dollar per square foot per crop cycle. So if we're doing, you know, five or six crop cycles, that means five or six dollars per square foot on, on, you know, on a given area. Uh, but things like, you, you know, you were mentioning spinach as being one of the crops that was your top five for, for market. For us, spinach isn't even on the list. Uh, because of the labor involved, the time involved, we can't get that kind of return. We can't get a dollar a square foot uh, per cycle uh, with spinach now. Uh, so, so, you know, that's not one that we grow for market. We grow it for ourselves, but, uh, but not for market. I'm not sure if I have a complete square foot dynamic in my farm, but, you know, I would say our range, depending on the crop we're growing, which we're growing a grain, Large scale, you might make $1,000 an acre up to maybe $75,000 an acre on a more intense type farm crop. Um, and that's whether you're mechanical harvesting or you're hand picking. I mean, there's just all kinds of ranges. Or you might, I mean, I've had losses. I mean, you, you can't always measure what you're going to make. So, you know, I'll grow something and I grew tomatoes one year on Romas and lost the whole thing. So, you know. You guys might be able to measure, I'm going to sell it at this point, but how much you're leaving the field and whatever else. I mean, there's, in our market, you know, Mexico might be bringing in stuff at a certain price. And they're saying, hey, you know, the price is this. So, you know, at some point we get to a point where what we do is we quit picking. When the price is a certain level and the market's not there, we've, we've left beautiful products in the field, just gorgeous. I'm thinking, why aren't we picking these? But there's no market, so we just work them in, work it up, done with them. 
I just want to interject here for the panel members that weren't here when we started. We're going to close by giving you just a few minutes to give your final words of counsel to anybody out there just trying to get into this. So be thinking of that. Uh, okay. Can, can I say so? Okay. Um, we try to grow three to four crops per square foot per, well, you try for 26 weeks of our season. That's really intense. We didn't make that this year. We only were able to do three at most. Most, most of our stuff was just two. And uh, at 360 per square foot is what it came out to. You're looking at over a dollar per square foot. I agree with the spinach, but we also have uh, Jonathan's lettuce harvester, which I've seen work very effectively on spinach, which changes the game, which I'm actually ordering one. I already have one ordered. So we'll see how that actually makes a difference. I don't know. But anyways. With microgreens as a salad mix or something, which one's more economical? Uh, uh, planting them in, in trays in a greenhouse or in beds in the garden. Now, can I just clarify? You said microgreens and salad mix because well, they're two, as a salad mix. As a salad mix. I don't know. <laughs> I haven't done it yet. I, I've grown microgreens in a in, in trays. I've never grown microgreens in the field. I don't. I don't know that that would. I don't know, it would be difficult to harvest them, I think. Um, and so, and the quantities usually you're selling, you know, they're selling those things for astronomical prices for whatever reason. The trays tend to be the, the volume and sort of the, the cleanliness of it is uh, really the way people are doing it. And the climate control. Yeah. I just want to mention something about greens, and this is related to, uh, to some of the food safety issues that we're faced with both now and that are coming. And uh, if you're a beginning grower, I would recommend that, that uh, you, you kind of steer clear of that for a period of time. And, and part of the reason is that once you cut a piece of vegetation, uh, they consider that part of a processing operation, and it also makes the vegetation much more susceptible to bacterial infection. And from a food safety perspective, uh, that's, uh, that's an area that's going to get scrutiny almost immediately uh, when the Food Safety Modernization Act is finally deployed among those of us that are growing fresh vegetables. Um, and uh, I, I, I think that I would, uh, I, would, I would tend to focus, especially if you're just starting out in some other area first. Now, I just wanted to clarify, are you saying any cut greens or were you talking specifically microgreens? Microgreens specifically because the surface area of, 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 of cut versus the surface area of product is so high with that. That's, that's one that's, that's going to set up red flags. I think we've got one more question here, and then we're going to try to wrap this up. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, recently, we're hearing reports now of the effects that such things as uh, chemtrails have on soil, uh, heavy metals, barium, aluminum. Um, if you can speak to what you may know about uh, how this, this kind of thing is affecting the soil and if there's anything we can do to counteract. Um, I've read in a Rodell's Guide to Composting, their book, um, that um, higher organic matters in the soil actually can chelate heavy metals into a form that's not taken up by the plant. I don't know the exact study on that, but it is in their composting book. I'll just mention that. Um, you know, I want to speak to this because this is a question that I'm asked frequently, and uh, you know, uh, there are many, uh, for lack of a better description, and I don't like this one, but uh, there are a number of new age people that, that uh, participate in, in our market and are customers of ours, and they discuss the effects of Fukushima. They just recently found definite signs of radiation off the coast of California now from Fukushima and the chemtrails and everything else. Um, I want us to be reminded that we're not the final source of our own safety and our own destiny. 
um, we're asked to do the best that we can. And it's my opinion that um, we do ultimately rely on the protection of the Lord for everything that we do. And this is an area uh, where the complexities, the confusion, the lack of science uh, to know what to do can, can really lead us on rabbit trails that will be destructive in, in, in the long run and play right into the enemy's hands. So if we are doing our best to grow crops that are um, efficient and nutritious and according to God's principles, uh, then we can pray for the safety. We can confidently pray for the protection and the safety that we need. Uh, but if we start focusing on the other avenues, the, the maybes and the, and the, and the could-bes, uh, I think we're going to find ourselves distracted and ultimately the, the enemy is going to conquer because we'll be deluded from, from the purpose that the Lord has called us to this. So in closing, I want to just give each, each of these farmers here a, oh, we had one more. Let's see if it's a quick one. I just wanted to ask, what are some herbs that are not really, really hard to grow, that, but that have a nice market for that any of you guys have seen? Basil. <laughs> what, what, what do you mean by nice market? If you go to the grocery store and you go to the fresh herbs section, they're usually in a, like a two-ounce package, and they're really expensive, depending on how, what scope and, and distribution you're talking about, you could make good money growing a lot of herbs, a lot of different from sage. I mean, something as simple as sage. But practically at a farmer's market, you won't sell much sage. So, you know, if you're talking about on a small scale, Basil. <laughs> uh, two others that, that we do real well with are parsley and cilantro, too. Uh, they're relatively easy to grow and uh, produce quite a bit for, for your investment, and those are two herbs that are, that are, are pretty popular, too. Uh, some of the more aromatic herbs, like the sage and, and some of the oreganos and uh, even things like thyme, uh, don't don't do as well in a humid climate, and this is a humid climate in this area. They don't develop the volatile oils or the fragrance or the pungency that most customers are accustomed to, um, uh, comparing it to plants that are grown in a drier climate. So uh, we grow those things for ourselves, but I don't, uh, I don't try to market things like rosemary and sage and, and, and thyme simply because we can't grow the, the type of quality that, that the consumer is used to. But parsley, cilantro, and basil especially. Ashley, uh, do, do real well in this environment. Okay, so your counsel, your words of wisdom for those who, who are starting on this journey. I'll just start with a couple things. I had a third one, but I didn't write it down quick enough, and it slipped my mind, so hopefully it'll come back. But Number one, a key for us is focusing on spring produce, getting, being the first to market with, with your produce because everybody's tired of the winter. They're, they're craving fresh stuff, and we can sell a lot of product in the spring. And ideally, you know, we've the last few few uh, years because we're starting our tomatoes in the hoop house. We've beat the other people at our market by up to a month, and so we we have a monopoly on the crop for the first month. So spring is where the money is, in my opinion. Um, not that you don't do those other things; you diversify again. And I think that was my, my other point, was diversifying. And I mentioned that before, but diversifying not only in, in the selection, but also in the season. Um, you know, you can have a really bad season weather-wise. So that's the one thing. Well, diversifying spring produce and then covered growing. Um, again, I had mentioned this before, but... Once you start growing, 
in protected spaces, it will spoil you because the quality is so much higher. And so I think that's a good place to invest your money. It's one of the few investments you can recoup in less than a year. I'll let Bob, I'll let Bob go first. <laughs> I didn't think about it a little bit. All right. Um, I'd like to say that, I, you know, it's my firm conviction that all of us are called to be gardeners. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that all of us are called to be full-time farmers. I think every one of us needs to be engaged in agriculture in some way or form. But if you're going to take this up as a vocation, uh, be certain that your calling and election is sure. Uh, you need to have confidence that this is the, the direction that the Lord uh, is, is moving you because, uh, frankly, it's hard work. And you have to be able to love this work in order to sustain yourself through those periods when you're out there picking broccoli, as my wife is today, with numb fingers. And in July, when the sweat is pouring and the humidity is high, uh, you, you have to be able to find joy in that. And the only way that that can happen is if this is your, your, your calling. So give that some, some serious consideration. I think most of you that are in this room are probably here because you've sensed that already, and I may be preaching to the choir and saying that. But understand that the benefits of market farming are not money. Uh, none of us are getting rich at this. And uh, the quality of the lifestyle that we have and the opportunity for the joy of that hard work and those trials is, is, is why we do this. And it takes an understanding of the joy in trials for us to, to, to really be fulfilled in doing what we're doing. Recognize also that this is the foundation for the health message. And the health message is the right arm of the gospel. Keep that connection in your mind every step of the way. And you will find that you are cooperating with the Lord and he will cooperate with you. The other thing I want to say is maybe a little bit more of a philosophical discussion than, than, than tangible things for you to make use of, but don't allow yourself to be too easily discouraged. You know, just as uh, when we undergo baptism, we know that the enemy is right there at our heels to, to try to distract us, discourage us, and dissuade us as much as possible. Uh, the enemy is at your heels if you're willing and wanting to take this up as a vocation too. The Lord, you know, the Lord ordained this from the beginning. The enemy knows that, and he knows that that discouragement is an easy way to accomplish this. So don't let a failure in one portion of your garden discourage you from, from, from being faithful and doing your best. And I will tell you this, and I'm sure this could be echoed by everybody up here. Wherever the enemy has a, a victory in the garden, when we, when we do have that failure of the Roma tomato crop or we do have a problem with, with the sweet potatoes or something happens that, uh, that, that can be discouraging to us, the Lord always makes up in abundance in some area that defies our explanation too. I have seen crops that have simply outperformed the, 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 the physics, the chemistry, and the, and the meteorology of, of, of why they should have produced so much. It's, it's beyond explanation, other than it's a simple blessing from the Lord to keep us encouraged. So keep those things in mind. Um, apart from that, uh, you need to have a fearless attitude uh, as, as you approach this too. Um, be, be certain in your convictions, and if you are called to this, then you can be fearless, and uh, you should be. Just, just sharing any wisdom that the Lord has shared with you okay. for these people. Okay, you know, I was, I was kind of thinking with, when Bob's talking about some things, you know, and, and, and then I'm thinking of my, my grandfather in Montana homesteading. I don't know if any of you were here when I showed some, that picture. And there's that little tiny cabin up there. They've, they had nothing, that little cabin. And... And yet he built that over the years. And I'm thinking, okay, so people here are thinking that we're not going to get rich in farming. I think it's possible, but the wealth is in many ways, but money could be a factor. I mean, I'm, it's possible that you, whoever's here, 
that wants to farm and they're thinking, I'm just getting started. But I, I rode on the shoulders of my grandfather and my father and mom and, and now I'm, I'm where I am, not that I'm, I'm not that, a big, that a big of a deal compared to some, but say you have kids, you've started farming and your kids watch what you do and their kids watch what you do and you're gonna build something that maybe we're just kind of starting that goes beyond what we do or what my grandparents did. And so in the Adventist church, I'm thinking, yeah, we've kind of, I didn't grow up in the Adventist church. We've kind of stumbled and fumbled and bumbled the agriculture thing, it seems to me, in our educational system. And I'm thinking, okay, and I've looked at that for years. I'm going, I, I, so if you're thinking, so he, I, I'm thinking of Alan, you know, here he's, he, he's got a, and, and this other kid that said, read the book of education, and I, or Dave, whatever the other kid was, and he said, and so there's your, perf there's your as, a, as a person starting out, I'm thinking, okay, take those books and read them. And you ask God to give you a vision of what your place is and what you're doing. And let him speak to you. Because that's, you know, I think, oh, here's all these worlds and stars and individual things bouncing around the world. And yet, somehow, God knows every one of us. And he knows you individually, what you're doing and what you're up to and what's going on in your life. And and you need to talk to him about it. I need to talk to him about it. And then as that becomes personal, then you have something to talk to other people about what God's doing for you. And it could be in agriculture or whatever. But I'm just thinking, don't be short-sighted about where we're going and what we're doing. And I don't see it all either, but I'm just saying, okay, I'm part of that, even though I'm kind of, I sometimes feel I've got my little narrow vision too. But... So I say, speak to God, read his books, let him speak to you, ask him. Because then as a group, just like Christ wants to unite us as brothers and sisters, and the garden is maybe the place we meet. So the garden, when, who is it? This, you said you took your stuff back to your auto dealership. He took some produce into the auto dealership, and we all kind of we all kind of relate whether whoever we are to our food. We know, and when I take stuff to friends with the garden, it's a place to connect, no matter who you are. So there's a lot of beauty in that. I don't maybe kind of wandering a little bit, but I'm thinking don't be short-sighted, and maybe you're just the beginning of what we're supposed to be doing, even though we've because we've stumbled for a few years. Well, then I'll pass it down to you after I'm done. Really quick, there's a quote in Spirit of Prophecy. It has to do with marriage and getting to know someone that you might be interested in marrying someday. But she has this quote that I think applies to agriculture. It says, make haste slowly. <laughs> and it's a really great thing. You want to be excited about what you're doing. You want to be excited about what you're doing. But you can overrun your headlights in a good thing. And um, kind of like I've been saying a little bit over the weekends, start small, start small, start small, start small. Um, of course, if you're already started, you know, you don't have to go back to small, but when you're starting out, start small. It's okay to start small. You don't have to have a tractor. You don't have to have a, you know, these, even, even a small tractor. You start with your little rotor tiller that your neighbor owns, okay? <laughs> you know, you don't even have to own these things. Um, but start small, enjoy it. Enjoy the experience and grow one step upon another because once you go so far, it will be clear of what you need to do next. Yeah, and I like Byron's example. I keep coming back to eat more dirt pills. So maybe once you get started in your own garden, it will give you a vision of, and, and then pretty soon you'll be more intelligent. You eat some more of those dirt pills, and you'll be smarter. Next day you'll be smarter. I'll tell you, oh, it's, it's, I was thinking it's over here. I can give you my personal experience, and that's all I can really give you, and that is it's hard because we make it hard. Perspective is a, is a big deal. I, had, I have interns who come, and they all do the same thing. None of them, many interns have come to the, my farms, have never farmed. 
And for some of them, and, and some of them are very athletic. They're, they're fit. They're not unfit people. And you really never know who's going to flourish in the garden and who's not. I mean, I, I have suspicions, and I'm, I'm wrong a lot. I, it's it's kind of neat to watch people who love it do well at it, though you may never expect that from them. And so it can be as difficult as you want it to be, or it can be as easy as you want it to be. I mean, Bob said it, if you love it, and there's no denying that, you know, 100 degrees and the sun and all day make for a rough day. But if you like what you're doing, I used to, I'll, I'll say it this way, I used to be a professional skateboarder, and you couldn't have kept me off my skateboard irrespective of the temperature. Now, it was just as hot, it was just as much sun, and it was still all day. I sweat, it was grueling, but do you catch my correlation here? You get to choose how you perceive the event. And if you love it, if you're called to it, then you're blessed. Understand? The blessing is in the work. I tell every intern I get, the blessing's in the work. The second thing I tell my interns when they show up is about two-thirds of the way through this year, you're going to think you're doing everything and nobody else is doing anything. I promise you that's how you'll feel. Don't believe it. Everybody is working hard, just as hard as you are. And if you take your focus off of what everybody else is not doing and everything that you are doing, and you focus on the blessing of what you get to do, you will have a much better day. God put man in the garden. It was his suggestion. God planted the first garden. He led by example. This has been so turned upside down on its head that it doesn't matter if you're doing this as in your backyard as a garden plot for you and your family or for a little education tool for your children. You will be blessed. If you're doing 12 acres, making hundreds of thousands of dollars growing a high-diversity, small-scale organic farm, your perspective, honestly, is going to make the difference of whether or not you're happy or not. If you're laboring for success and the adoration of people, which is easy to fall into. Because I'll tell you, when I was in Seattle, being a, a successful farmer, you were, you were famous in Seattle. I went into restaurants, I got special treatment, I ate free. Everyone, this, this you know, they, they tell everyone in the restaurant, this is who grew your food. You get treated really, it's, it's easy to fall into those things. Even in Kentucky, where I'm at now, where I sell in Kentucky, it's easy to get lifted up. And if that's what you're operating under, it's false economy. It's not real. But if, you're, if your labor of love is to glorify God, is to lift up God, it doesn't matter if anyone recognizes you, as long as your Heavenly Father recognizes that you're in His will. And this is, you know, maybe a little too philosophical. But motive, I think, is really key in this. If you have the correct motive, you'll persevere through the rest. And, and we came to a farm that I had come from the West. I had come from places where we successfully grew. And I failed miserably. Our first year on, on the farm... We literally, it was a disaster, and it was humbling. I mean, it was really humbling. I mean, I'll be vulnerable with you. I was in, kind of in tears with my wife. I'm like, how are we going to do this? Like, we have invested everything, and all we have is the faith that God has called us to this And put one foot in front of the other and believe that if he's truly called me to this, he will make a way of escape. 
And this year, we did better with the hopes that it's in the right direction, that next year will be better, and next year will be better. You know, you're going to fail at certain things. You're gonna, something's going to fail along the way, and if that is what, the success of those things is what determining your ability to move forward, you're going to fail. Success is putting your foot forward. Success is in the act of doing. Done? All right. Um, you know, if, if, I guess that's the last thing I'll leave you with. You know, um, if you don't do it, you've already failed. just want to make, since I kind of waxed esoteric there too, I do want to give you one practical uh, uh, piece of, of our experience, and that is that if you are just starting out, realize that you may be composting more than you're selling initially, in part because customers, potential customers, uh, are going to want to know that you're not just there this Tuesday, that you're going to be back next Tuesday with good quality product too, and the Tuesday after that. So they're going to study you for a while, and this is true both for, for large buyers and, and just individual customers at the farmer's market. The first three years that we were in West Virginia, uh, the first two years uh, particularly, we composted probably a third of what we grew. And that was simply to demonstrate that we can do it. We can do it week after week, week after week. We can have a good, consistent product for you. And whether you buy it or not, this is what we do. So, well, they, you know, it, it, it took time to build that trust and that relationship with people. And that's part of what they're looking for in small-scale agriculture. They want to know you. They want to know a little bit about your character. And it's important that you realize that you're not going to have... Uh, well, and, and in some cases you may, but we did not have immediate success right off the bat. We had to persist for a while. Now we have uh, demand for far more than, than we're willing to grow, uh, but it does take time to, to, to build that. The other uh, quick word I want to, to, to express here is that, you know, we've been given this, this special emphasis on the study of agriculture and the spirit of prophecy uh, over 100 years ago. And folks, we're way behind right now, what the world is doing. Uh, the opportunities out there and the competition out there is, is stiff. And there are folks that know what they're doing. And, and they're doing, many of them are doing it for very good reasons, too. I believe that the Lord and the Holy Spirit are working through many of these people, drawing them to his truths uh, through uh, the book of nature, uh, using agriculture to do that. Um, but, uh, you know, we can't have the, the attitude that we're the only ones that have the health message or we're the only ones that understand that agriculture and, and health are important because that's just not the case. I think this is back on again. Can you hear me? Okay. I just want to thank each of the the farmers on our panel who have pulled themselves away from the farm and uh, come here for this weekend, I, I hope that it's been a blessing to you. Um, I've, I've, it's been a blessing to me to hear from others. I, I just want to end with, with one thought that um, we try to always keep in mind on our farm when when we when i quit my previous job and was trying to seek the lord on what i should do you know it's kind of a scary thing to do when you have a young family that's depending on you and you don't have a source of income uh i spent a lot of time with the lord and that's one thing this is a side note but every year i try to take a few days not successively but throughout the year where I just go out with the Lord and have a business meeting with him and that has really kept us going through the hard times you know it's his farm and he can tell me how to run it and how to to operate it so that's been a huge thing 
Let's, let's close with prayer, and then I have one quick announcement. Our dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being here, of rubbing shoulders with like-minded individuals, people who realize the importance of the system you set up, the importance of your plan. And I just pray that you will be with each one of us where we are, not only physically, but also in our journey with you, and that you will guide us and encourage us and strengthen us for what lies ahead. Lord, may we be willing to step out on faith and trust that you will not let us go. So we just thank you for this experience. In Jesus' name, amen. And so my last point, which came to me, is that what the Lord spoke to me in one of those times when I was really just seeking him, saying, how am I going to feed my family? He spoke very clear to me, and he said, you don't have to worry about that. You focus on service, and I'll take care of that. And so I just, I, I want to close with that because we've talked about economics, we've talked about these things, and we don't want to ignore them. But at the same time, I believe if we are seeking first his kingdom by serving others, he's going to provide for our physical needs. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.